Revelation 11, verse 15, these might be uh, some words familiar to some of you. Uh, Perhaps you've heard them sung every year in the famous oratorio, Handel's Messiah. Uh, The Hallelujah Chorus uh, includes a line from verse 15, He shall reign forever and ever. Legend has it uh, that when Handel's Messiah premiered in London, King George II stood upon hearing the Hallelujah Chorus. It said that he was moved by the arrangement and he stood to pay homage to the true King of Kings, Jesus Christ. Now whether or not we can verify that legend historically... It at least illustrates how the end of Revelation 11 should move us. Um, At the heart of the book, the seventh trumpet announces Jesus' reign. And that should not only solidify our allegiance to Jesus, it should also move us to join heaven in worshiping Jesus. So let's let's read it together. Starting in verse 15, the seventh trumpet... Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God, fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged And for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great. And for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. So before we look at the seventh trumpet itself, I want to show you how Revelation has prepared us to understand the seventh trumpet. There are several clues outside verses 15 through 19 that have taught us what to expect in the seventh trumpet. For starters, recall how these seven trumpets are an allusion to the situation in Jericho. Uh, This is in Joshua 6. You remember that God had worked in mercy to save Rahab. But God also judged the city of Jericho for their rebellion. And part of that plan included seven priests with seven trumpets marching around the city seven days. 
And with the seventh trumpet blast, God devoted the city to destruction. He replaced the rebel kingdom with his kingdom there in Joshua 6. What do you think it conveys when seven priest-like angels receive seven trumpets? It anticipates the rebellious city of man crumbling before the kingdom of God. That was just a small picture of what it will be like at the end. And that's what we should expect in the seventh trumpet, God's kingdom replacing the rebel kingdom. Something else. Consider how the the seventh trumpet relates to the third woe. Turn back with me to chapter 8, verse 13. Chapter 8, verse 13. Four trumpets have, have already sounded in chapter 8. And John then sees this ominous vision of a bird of prey flying overhead. And he declares these three woes. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So that means trumpets 5 and 6 and 7 will bring woes on earth dwellers. Earth dwellers in Revelation are God's enemies. A woe is a cry for someone who is under God's curse. And so with trumpets 5, 6, and 7 we should expect God's curse of judgment to fall on His enemies. And that's exactly what happens. In chapter 9, verse 12, we see that John identifies woes 1 and 2 with trumpets 5 and 6. Both are temporary judgments meant to drive rebels to repentance. And then in chapter 11, verse 14, it anticipates the third woe coming soon with the seventh trumpet. So in the seventh trumpet, we should expect the judgment of God to fall on his enemies. But since it's the final woe, the third woe, the judgment will have finality this time. Then one more way that Revelation has prepared us to understand the seventh trumpet. It has told us that the seventh trumpet brings us to the very end of history. Okay, in the seventh seal we noted the language of theophany. uh, God appearing with thunder and lightning and an earthquake. Uh, We find the same language in verse 19. Flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. So like the seventh seal, right? John is run, runs us to the end once again with the seventh trumpet when God's majesty shakes the created order. Now, if we sketched it next to the seventh seal, I've shown you this before. This is my attempt to make sense of things uh, on the screen That's what it would look like. The seventh seal and the seventh trumpet are the same event. And guess what? So will 
the seventh bowl be the same event when we get there. But more explicitly, listen again to chapter 10, verse 7. If you look there, chapter 10, verse 7, the angel tells John, In the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets. And so the seventh trumpet takes us to the end again. In other words, even if it doesn't develop everything in detail, perhaps like chapters 21 and and 22 will provide, the seventh trumpet still encapsulates what it means for the mystery of God to be fulfilled, what it means for the prophets of old, for their words to come to pass. So in the seventh trumpet then, we should expect a new age announced where where all God's promises come to pass in a final and more complete way. So, what should we expect? What has Revelation taught us to expect in coming to the seventh trumpet? It's taught us to expect that the rebellious kingdom of man will crumble before the kingdom of God, that judgment will fall on God's enemies, and God's promises will find their fulfillment in a new age. Now, let's see how the seventh trumpet develops these expectations and then brings them to bear on our own lives in the way it's presented in the book. First thing to note is that the seventh trumpet announces the reign of Christ. The seventh trumpet announces the final reign of Christ. Verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now, we've already said that the seventh trumpet is picturing the end. And so, when these voices say the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, they are saying so from the future, so to speak. They're describing a reality that will come at the end with the seventh trumpet. That's not to say that Jesus isn't reigning now. Right? Other places in Revelation depict Christ reigning from His heavenly throne right Now, the point here is that Jesus' heavenly reign will eventually manifest itself fully on the earth. That's why it says, the kingdom of the world has become. The kingdom of the world is the entire system of evil that opposes God and His, His people. We... We talked about it last week in terms of two cities, right? God's city and the city of man, or the rebellious city. And and now John is looking at it in terms of that city is a kingdom, the kingdom of the world, and it is an entire system of evil that opposes God and his people. The kingdom of the world is where Satan's throne is. Chapter 2, verse 13. Satan uh, raises up beast-like rulers to oppress God's people. Chapter 2, verse 10, and chapter 11, verse 7. He raises up beast-like teachers that enslave people to false ideas that then lead others to abuse image-bearers and destroy God's creation. Revelation 13. In John's letters, he speaks of the whole rebellious world lying in the power of the evil one. And that is still the case today. 
This whole present age can be characterized as the world lying in the power of the evil one. That's the kingdom of the world. But what heaven announces here is that Jesus' kingdom will replace the kingdom of the world. In the seventh trumpet, we see the fulfillment of the long-awaited hopes of Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2 stands behind some of the the imagery here. Uh, We we talked about this quite some time ago in chapter 1. But uh, in Daniel 2, this is where Nebuchadnezzar sees a, a vision, a, a dream of, of, a, of, a, of, a, of an image, right? And this image represents kingdoms of the world. And then he sees this stone that's not cut by human hands, meaning it's, it's, a, it's a work of God that God himself will do. And this stone comes and it shatters that, that image and it raises up like a mountain, like a kingdom, a great kingdom that covers the entire earth forever. And, and, the, and the seventh trumpet, what it's doing is announcing that the great day of Daniel's prophecy will come when the rock of Jesus' kingdom shatters all the others and then rises like a great mountain to cover the earth. In the seventh trumpet, we also see the fulfillment of the long-awaited hopes of Psalm chapter Perhaps you thought of Psalm chapter 2 earlier when, as I was reading and you heard words like, and of his Christ, and of his anointed one, right? Or, or, or when we, in verse 8, when you heard about the nations raging, and you remembered Psalm chapter 2. So Psalm 2 is providing some of the backdrop here, and in Psalm 2, what's, what's going on? We see kings and kingdoms of the world, and they set themselves against the Lord and His anointed. Let us burst apart their bonds, they say. Let us cast away their, their cords from us, they say. That's, that's why we have war in Ukraine. That's why we have things like abortion mills. That's why media outlets rack up the clicks with angry, polarizing headlines. The nations rage against the Lord and His anointed. Only when David looks upon their raging in Psalm 2, he finds it rather comical. When Psalm 2 says, Why? Do the nations rage? It's not a genuine question. It's a rhetorical one. Their rage against the Lord is insane. Why? Why do they, why do they rage? This is craziness, David says. Because, he goes on in Psalm 2, the Lord sits in sovereignty over the nations... And the Lord has decreed worldwide dominion to His Son who sits on Zion's hill. His Son will inherit the ends of the earth as His possession. His Son will shatter the nations with a rod of iron. Well, Acts chapter 13 and Hebrews 1 both indicate that God's Son has already taken His seat on Zion's hill. It is by virtue of His resurrection that Jesus already reigns above all kings and kingdoms. 
What the seventh trumpet is adding is that Jesus' reign above all in heaven will manifest itself on the earth at the seventh trumpet. God will replace the raging kingdoms of the world with the kingdom of Christ. Worldly kingdoms that kick against God's ways, they won't last. Christ's kingdom will be forever and ever. That's what the seventh trumpet announces. In verses 16 to 18, we then see a heavenly response to this announcement. The reign of Christ engenders worship. The reign of Christ engenders worship. Verse 16, the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. Now these 24 elders, we've wrestled with their identity before, back in in chapter 4, but throughout Revelation, the focus isn't so much on their identity as it is on their function. What are they doing? Again, their function within the vision recognizes God's reign and it exemplifies what we all ought to be about, which is orienting our lives around the worship and service of the Lord, who is the true King. But what is it that moves them to worship here? The text seems to to outline three three reasons. First, they, they give thanks for the Lord establishing His rule. Into verse 17, for... You have taken your great power and begun to reign. Now, for God to take his great power doesn't mean someone else had it. Then he had to get it back. Or that he didn't possess it before. It simply means that he has exercised that power in a new and specific way. Same with the translation, you have begun to reign. The point isn't that he didn't reign before but that his reign now manifests itself in a new and specific way on earth. Okay? Using his... uh, Ben kind of teased this out a while back in the Lord's Prayer, right? Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is talking about when the Lord's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Using his power, God causes the, the heavenly reign of Jesus to manifest itself fully on earth. And for that day, heaven erupts in praise because it is right for Jesus to establish God's reign on earth. It is, it is right, it is good for the world that all evil kingdoms will get replaced by Jesus' kingdom. It is praiseworthy that God's promises come to pass in Jesus' reign. Finally, the groanings of creation itself will have their answer in a new world. Second, they they give thanks for the Lord rewarding His people. They give thanks for the Lord rewarding His people. Verse 18 acknowledges how the time came for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great. Revelation 22, verse 12 anticipates the same reward. Jesus promises, I am coming soon, bringing my reward with me. So on the last day, we have these servants like Moses and Isaiah and Jeremiah and John. They will receive their reward for their faithful testimony. But you know what? So will all of God's people. In the same way that God's going to reward Moses and Elijah and Isaiah and all these Old Testament, He's going to reward you 
saints of God. All God's faithful, both small and great, no matter your status socially, no matter how many people know your name or what you've done, if you fear the Lord and serve Him, the Lord will reward you for your faithfulness at the last trumpet. Now I'll talk more about what that reward includes in a minute. For now let's move to another reason they give thanks. They also give thanks for the Lord destroying His enemies. They give thanks for the Lord destroying His enemies. The nations raged, they say in verse 18. But your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged. And part of that judgment includes rewarding the saints. The other part includes destroying the destroyers of the earth. Now again, the idea of the nations raging goes back to Psalm chapter 2. Their rage against the Lord will not last forever. The Lord's wrath will come. But remember, God's wrath is a pure expression of His holiness. God's wrath is a pure expression of His holiness. It's not the work of a capricious God flying off the handle. The Lord's wrath is controlled by His character and used towards good end. The Lord's wrath restores the good and it removes the evil. It restores the good and removes the evil. That's why God will destroy the destroyers of the earth. Destroyers of the earth mainly has to do with those who destroy the earth's inhabitants. In chapter 9, verse 11, John identifies Satan by the name Apollyon, or Abaddon, which means destroyer. So Satan is a destroyer, and so are all who follow Satan into sin. Sin destroys everything. It destroys our person. It destroys our attitude. It destroys our relationships with with one another. It destroys the way we use God's creation even. Remember from chapter 8, instead of stewarding creation for the worship of God, creation becomes a life-sucking factory for the idols of man. And so the intent of God's judgment here is to remove those who are bent on destroying what's good. This last point comes as an answer to prayer. Remember chapter 6, verse 10, and the cries of the martyrs under the altar... How long, O Lord, before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And here is their answer in the seventh trumpet. When the Lord establishes His kingdom on earth, He will avenge the blood of His people. So the reign of Christ engenders worship because God's rule will finally come on earth, God's people will finally receive their reward, and God's enemies will finally be destroyed. There's one more piece to the seventh trumpet. The reign of Christ brings God's presence. The reign of Christ brings God's presence. In verse 19, God's temple in heaven opens and John sees the ark of his covenant. And that vision will continue in chapter 15, verses 5 through 8. So the seventh trumpet's actually broken up and 
split apart by seven more visions that John will get and what we'll go through, but, but it picks it back up in chapter 15, verses 5 to 8. So I'll develop this more when we get there. For now, it's just enough to recall that God's temple is where he dwells, and the ark of his, the ark of the, uh, of his, the ark there is, is the ark, right? Uh, if we remember in the Old Testament, um, God was enthroned above the cherubim on the ark. It's the seat of his throne, in other words. So, so, um, so we have God's presence and where he's, dwell, where he's dwelling, where he's enthroned. And the reign of Christ, it, um, when, when Christ's reign comes on earth fully, it's another way of saying that he will make earth one with heaven. Okay, in Revelation 21, we see this developed where Christ's reign so manifests the presence of God that the entire earth becomes his sanctuary. Entire earth becomes his dwelling. Trey talked about this a few weeks ago from Isaiah 60. The Lord will be your everlasting light. and God will be your glory. So the reign of Christ brings God's presence. So that's That's what the seventh trumpet announces. Let's let's consider a few implications. Uh, Some of these that I'll develop come from how the seventh trumpet relates to the message of Revelation as a whole. Uh, Others come from how the message of the seventh trumpet relates to uh, other places in the New Testament that speak of the same theme. But first... Repent and trust Christ before the seventh trumpet blows. I mentioned this one before. Repent and trust Christ before the seventh trumpet blows. Within the, the seventh trumpet hasn't blown. Within the vision, John sees it blowing. But in terms of our experience, historically, it hasn't yet blown. So a serious question you need to ask yourself is, do you belong to the nations who rage against the Lord? Do do you find the Bible to be burdensome because you you don't like its moral restraints? Are are you wanting to kind of kick off these, I don't want to be under these these commands anymore. I don't like them. Is that that your, your heart towards the Lord? Go on and read passages like Psalm 2 and Daniel 2 and Revelation 11, though. Those who live that way are only destroying themselves. They're only destroying the earth. They are not progressing morally. They are being destroyed morally. And God will not tolerate it. If you keep raging against Him, He will rage against you and you are guaranteed to lose. And that's the bad news. Here's the good news. Before the last trumpet blows, God extends great mercy to His enemies. And He does so in a manner that is consistent with His hatred for evil. The Bible calls it propitiation. Propitiation 
means that God acts to satisfy His wrath against sinners in the death of Jesus. God acts to satisfy His wrath against sinners in the death of Jesus. 1 John 4.10 In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. If you trust in Jesus, that means your judgment is taken care of. It is removed. Your sins are all paid for. There is no condemnation, the Bible says, for those who are in Christ Jesus. So forsake your quest for autonomy, your quest for sinful pleasures, and surrender yourself to the true King who is coming. Jesus is your only hope to escape judgment. And He's the only one to bring you true freedom in God's presence when He comes again. So repent and trust Christ before the seventh trumpet blows. Second, the seventh trumpet does not allow us to stay complacent in a world coming to judgment. The seventh trumpet does not allow us to stay complacent in a world coming to judgment. The seventh trumpet teaches us how to view history. History is not cyclical. It's just going to go on forever. Like It's linear. The Lord is taking us somewhere. He's taking the world. He's taking everything to the judgment and new creation. So we must live for His kingdom, not for this world. Now consider how this seventh trumpet would have sounded to a few of those churches back in chapters 2 and 3, consider how the seventh trumpet would have, would have landed on them after Jesus rebukes them for being complacent in the world. Consider uh, Sardis, for example, the church in Sardis. They had assimilated to the world so much that Jesus called them dead, meaning dead to the things of God. And the other was Laodicea, They had become so dependent on the kingdom of the world, they acted like they had no need for Christ anymore. So you can imagine them hearing that rebuke of Jesus and then hearing the seventh trumpet sound in John's vision. If Jesus' kingdom will replace the kingdom of the world... You can no longer straddle the fence. You can no longer pretend that it's okay to have the world and Jesus too. It's not okay to have your sin and Jesus too. The kingdom of the world is going down, so you don't tie your hopes up with it. Invest in Christ's kingdom by serving the saints. Showing hospitality in Jesus' name. Sharing the gospel with others. Making motherhood glorious. Discipling others who are young in the faith. Building up others in the truth. Doing your work heartily for the Lord. Being generous and, and ready to share with others. Invest in that kingdom. Invest in Jesus' kingdom that's going to last forever. Consider how the, the New Testament elsewhere applies this the same, the same themes uh, to Christians. 2 Corinthians 5, 9 and 10. Whether we are at home or away, 
we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And so the same idea is supposed to motivate Christians to live lives that are pleasing to God. 2 Peter 3, verses 10 and 12. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? So we see here God's judgment is supposed to motivate holy living. Godly living. Living your life before the face of God every moment. 2 Corinthians 5.11 We all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Complacency in evangelism is one way to test how much you believe in final judgment. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. What day? The day of Christ. The seventh trumpet day. And so God's judgment actually motivates us to gather together and to encourage one another so we don't fall away. So again and again, we see the New Testament using Christ's coming and His reward and His judgment to to move us into passionate service. Many of you have been faithful, though. Not complacent. You have been like, the, like some of the other pictures of faithfulness in the churches in chapters 2 and 3. You have borne up well for Jesus' name. You have been laboring well with the grace given to you. You have served the church with zeal. You have shared the gospel with friends and co-workers. I hear the stories. You have suffered with patience. Others of you have worked quietly behind the scenes and rarely do you receive a thank you. Some of you for years have poured yourself out for Christ's sake on children at home, on spouses who just don't seem to get it. You have poured yourself out on siblings that don't want to change. You have poured yourself out on family members that in turn manipulate you. You have poured yourself out on friends that just leave anyway. You've poured yourself out on co-workers that that don't care to keep listening. 
and it seems like nothing ever comes of your faithful service. Sometimes it might even lead you to doubt whether to keep serving with so little in return. The seventh trumpet has something to say to you as well. Rest assured, beloved, Jesus sees your faithfulness and He's bringing your reward. He sees your faithfulness and He's bringing your reward. For those who fear His name, both small and great, your reward is coming. What does that include? Chapters 2 and 3 told us a few. To the one who conquers, Jesus promised you the tree of life in the paradise of God. You will eat from it and you will be healed. He promised you the crown of life, which means you will be protected from the second death. Forever will you have life. And He promised you a white stone with a new name that signals you are His forever in the most intimate way. He will give you authority over the nations and all the benefits of His reign will be yours. He will confess your name before His Father, Revelation 3 give you citizenship in the new Jerusalem, and He will seat you together with Him on His Father's throne. There's no greater reward than that. Fullness of joy resides there. At His right hand are pleasures forevermore, Psalm 16 tells us, and that's all yours, faithful ones. So don't lose heart. Every step of obedience, every dirty diaper changed, In the name of Jesus, every cup of cold water you have served, every dollar that you have given that somebody else squandered, every living room shared, you care group hosts, every truthful word rejected, every act of integrity missed by your boss, Every tear shed for the lost. It will all be totally worth it. Why? Because God is faithful to reward those whose works display the worthiness of His Son. As Hebrews 6.10 says, God is not unjust so as to overlook your work. He sees you and He will follow through on the reward. It's coming. And then finally, trust the Lord to destroy the destroyers of the earth. Trust the Lord to destroy the destroyers of the earth. Instead of repenting, some will continue joining Satan in destroying the earth. Some will keep destroying babies in the womb under the guise of reproductive health. Some will seek to destroy children by withholding the truth about their God-given sex and then affirming the mutilation of their bodies. Others will destroy by seeking to undermine the nuclear family. Others will destroy by trafficking humans or using humans for their own fantasies. Others will destroy by building themselves bigger barns instead of using their resources to help those in need. Others will destroy the church by abandoning the Bible's moral vision for holiness 
or by spreading corrupting talk. Sometimes we, we can feel like this is the only thing we ever see. The downfall and destruction of all that God created to be good, sometimes it feels like it's the only thing we ever see. But here we have a vision that gives us hope. Things will not always be this way. The Lord will put an end to all destroyers. Destroyers will not go free forever. Their destination will be a just penalty of destruction. Their destruction will be met with destruction. Our prayer is for their repentance before the day of judgment, of course. Our prayer is for Christ to convert destroyers and to make them disciples. That's what He did to us. Since vengeance belongs to the Lord, we are also freed to love these destroyers, these enemies of God, and seek the salvation of those who hate God. But for those who continue in rebellion and the hatred of God's ways, we can trust Him to judge rightly. God will make the world right again. In the new world, there will be no more destroyers. Everything that God created for good and beauty will last forever and it will not be destroyed. It will prosper like it's supposed to prosper. And for that, we can join heaven in worship and in giving thanks. I'll pray for us and then we'll do that in song. Father, we thank you for your great love and mercy in Christ, our propitiation. Through him, we find rescue from coming judgment. Through him, we find life in the new heaven and new earth. Please strengthen our hearts until that day comes. With this vision, help us to persevere in doing good and not grow weary. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.